Hi, I'm Samantha Langford and I'm talking about the death of my brother through autoerotic asphyxiation. Welcome to The Silent Why, a podcast on a mission to explore if hope can exist in 101 different types of loss and to hear from those who've experienced them. I'm Claire. And I'm Chris. Hello. And we just want to give you a heads up that this episode deals with some very adult themes around death and also sex. So please use discretion on where and when you're listening. For Lost 44 of 101, we're talking to Samantha Langford from Lincolnshire in the UK. When I first met Sam, we were talking about recording a conversation about handling grief in the workplace, which is coming up soon. She happened to mention, however, that her brother had died, and it was such a unique but important subject to raise awareness of, we decided to do an episode about that too, which led to this conversation. For 25 years, Sam has remained pretty tight-lipped on the subject, and you'll hear why. It's only recently she's begun sharing more about her experience, and this is the first time she's spoken publicly about how he died through autoerotic asphyxiation. I remember them coming into my bedroom to wake me up to tell me that my brother had died and my entire world just imploded. I seem to remember actually they had to get the GP out to me to try and calm me down and since then everything's changed. Erotic asphyxiation, also known as breath control play, is the intentional restriction of oxygen to the brain for the purposes of sexual arousal. This can be done through strangulation, suffocation, neck or chest compression, or the inhalation of volatile chemicals. The term autoerotic asphyxiation is used when the act is done by a person to themselves rather than in a couple. It's a really dangerous practice that can lead to accidental death, which is sadly what happened with Sam's brother in 1997, when he was just 21 years old. As with many accidental deaths in the home, the coroner's verdict was death by misadventure, an accident or mistake but one that left his family with two very difficult subjects to deal with, sex and death. For the first couple of weeks, I think, I didn't even ask how he died. My parents didn't tell me, but then our local newspaper decided it was front page news. Grieving is hard enough when you lose someone so young, but when you throw in another taboo, such as sex, you get a bereavement that's incredibly hard to open up about with others. I had one person really quite adamantly tell me that it was suicide and I was fooling myself and within a few months I got to the point where I thought you know what I'm just not going to talk about this so for the rest of my time at university I just said it was an accident and that is how I lived my life for a very very long time. The death of Sam's brother had a huge impact on the direction of her life including her choice of career which you'll hear her talk about. And it's important to remember when dealing with subjects like this however uncomfortable it might make you feel at times at the heart of this is still a family trying to navigate the death of a young son and as with many griefs we've explored over the years, Sam's also noticed the good that has grown from it. I think now that I've got to this point where I'm able to talk about my brother much more freely and to articulate my own emotions, I think I'm just much more aware of who I am now. We're so pleased that Sam felt able to have this conversation with us to help us understand the complexities of such a loss. Over to her to introduce herself. So I am Samantha Langford, but everyone calls me Sam. I recently started my own business and I'm based in Lincolnshire in the UK. At the moment, life is quite hectic having just started my own business, um, but that's come off the back of being made redundant just before Christmas. So it's necessary, it's exciting, but it's also exhausting. So I'm away a lot at the moment. It's quite nice to actually be sat at home having this conversation rather than being out and about on the road at the moment. And I can see that you also have an appreciation for ferns like I do behind you. Yes, I do love a fern. I do love a bit of greenery. Ferns seem to be the only plant that I don't manage to kill. So there are a lot of ferns about. (laughs) 
ferns and spider plants everything else seems to die on me yes i have so many of those but i love a fern got a big fern in the lounge one of my favorites well as well as the fern um the picture over your right shoulder as well i think is of the new york skyline a sort of a dusky picture we've got the exact same picture as well oh that's chicago we've not got the exact same picture at all we've got (laughs) we've got one like it close the photo above it is from New York. Right, yeah. fine. <laughs> so, yes, you're here today to talk to us about something to do with your family and your brother. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what family life looked like for you? So my dad was in the military, so I am an official army brat. Um, so I spent a lot of my childhood living in one country or another and moving around. Um I have two brothers and they're both older than me. So for a large proportion of that time, they were at secondary school in the UK and I was with my parents in Germany. So I was sort of separated from my my family in, in a way. Um, my mum and I spent a lot of our time by ourselves. My dad was away with army quite a lot. And my, obviously my brothers were in the UK. But you know, when we did get together, we had some great, amazing summer holidays. We get to travel to various places around the world. I think that's where I got the travel bug. I do love traveling. And I think that's down to sort of like the army upbringing. So up until I was, I think we came back to live in the UK permanently when I was about 13. So just as I was sort of starting my sort of secondary school um, life, really, that's when my dad retired and we were able to sort of put down roots in the UK and live permanently in the UK. And that's how sort of everything was progressing, really, up until I got to 16. Everything changed at 16, certainly as far as family's concerned. So, yeah, what was the conversation that you had when everything changed? Yeah, so um, I had not long since started my A-levels and I'd gone to a sixth form college. So it was September, so literally only a few weeks in, into that. My oldest brother, um, Craig, he was actually working in Oxford at the time. He was living away. But he'd not really been doing that job particularly long, probably only sort of a few months just before the summer. And we had police officers knock on the door. My father had to answer the door to police officers to inform him that my brother had passed away. So that was what my parents told me. I remember them coming into my bedroom to wake me up to tell me that my brother had died. And my entire world just imploded. I seem to remember actually they had to get the GP out to me to try and calm me down. And since then, everything's changed. Every every part of me and my entire life, my the trajectory I'd planned for my life. Obviously, I was doing my A-levels. I'd got a plan in mind. It's like your entire world just shifts on its axis. And I think at 16, quite a important part of your life as well to have something so monumental occur. And I think the manner of his death as well also made it really difficult. What was the dynamic like between you and your brother that that meant that you were absolutely broken by it? Um, So Craig was obviously, he was the firstborn of the child. So he's my oldest brother. So much fun as a person. You know, um, I loved spending time with him. And I think my mum's always told me that when I was born, he used to rush home from school to come and see me when I was a baby. If I ever had a problem with homework, he was the the person I'd go to. I was thought he was really intelligent. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that I don't have a really good relationship with my other brother because I really, really do. But they're different personalities, very, very different personalities. I'm probably closer to Stephen, my other brother, as a result. But obviously he, his relationship with Craig was completely different to mine. He lost someone different to who I, I lost. Do you have a favourite memory that you have with him that you sort of go to when you think about him? 
Yeah, um, very much. He had, he drove um, an old Mini, you know, the original Minis with the choke button. And there's a particular smell that comes with that as well. So that's a real strong memory for me is being in his Mini. And he actually came home from Oxford when I got my GCSE results. He came home to celebrate with me. And I really remembered that. But he was really, he was so proud of me. And it was just, just so lovely. I think it's probably the one of the last times I saw him. So I think that's why it's probably such a, a vivid memory. For the first couple of weeks, I think, I didn't I didn't even ask how he died. My parents didn't tell me. But then our local newspaper decided it was front page news. What did they say? I've still not seen the newspaper article 25 years on. I've still not read that. But because it was in the newspaper, my parents obviously knew that they had to sit down and explain to me what had gone on. Uh, as to why the the local newspaper found my brother's death, who was living in a different county at the time, why they suddenly decided that this was sort of a new, newsworthy um, story. So they had to explain it to me. And I've recently found, talking to my mum, that, you know, there were a lot of discussions around within the family. And my dad was really finding it difficult to explain to my mum how my brother had died as well. So it wasn't just me. And I and I think there'll be other family members that found it quite difficult to understand what had happened and how it had happened. But let's just dive into it. So the newspapers decided it was noteworthy because my brother died by autoerotic asphyxiation, which Though there are many different ways that people practice this, and it isn't always autoerotic, it's sometimes um, with a partner, it's called breath play, and it's essentially controlling or restricting the amount of airflow to the brain to heighten orgasm during sex. So a lot of stigma and taboo around that. So you can understand how my parents trying to tell a 16-year-old, and I freely admit I was a very naive 16-year-old, you know, I didn't have a boyfriend at the time to try and sit down and explain to me how her older brother had died, um, just how difficult that must have been for, for my parents. And equally across across the family, how to have that conversation with other family members as well um, and to understand the nuances behind that, to where that came from and how, how it came to happen, really. That must be really hard. And, and you say a naive 16-year-old, but I would imagine a lot of people listening to this still wouldn't know what that was, wouldn't be aware that it was actually something that happens or that people die from. So mm. how how common is it? Yeah, this is something I've been looking into quite a lot recently because it feels to me like 25 years on and we're still not in a place culturally here in the UK where we talk about these things. I've got friends that are within the kink community where it is more well spoken about. But why does it need to be a separate community? You know, why do you have to join a separate community to be able to talk freely about these things? Because at the end of the day, it's sex. It's not something that, you know, only a few people do. This is quite a normal practice. You know, we need it. We need it to, to keep the human race going. Yet here in the UK, we seem so reluctant to talk about it. So I, I know personally of quite a few couples that practice um, together and, you know, there's quite a lot of people that either have thought about it, have tried it once or practice it on a regular basis. But it is well known throughout sort of the kink community to be the most dangerous practice, sexual practice, because it can cause instant death. And yet that's the bit that people kind of only touch on at, at the end. Um, and even the, the article that my brother had, you know, had he have read all the way to the end where the warning was, we might not be having this conversation today, but the warning came at the end. It's a bit like, you know, we now have warnings on cigarette packets before people even start smoking. Yet with something like this, the warning, if it exists, 
is very often at the end and 21 year old men don't necessarily want to wait until they've read to the end of something it's a bit like with ikea flat pack furniture who reads all the way to the end of the instructions when they could just give something a go yeah your brother having an article so was he trying something that he had been reading about Yes. Yeah. So that was something that I'm aware of that helped with the coroner's investigation, because obviously a death of this nature, there is police investigation, there is a coroner's investigation and the coroner has to, you know, come up with um, with a ruling. And my understanding is that they did find an article with him, with his body, and that was what was able to help um, with that investigation. All too often that doesn't happen. And sometimes deaths of this manner can can be categorised in many different ways. Sometimes they're even categorised as suicide when they might not actually be suicide. And it's really quite a complex area. And it does obviously require an investigation. And if there are two parties involved, you, you do sometimes end up with people having manslaughter or murder investigations because obviously they've survived and their partner hasn't. It is really such a difficult area and I think because society doesn't talk about it it's kind of hushed up and brushed under the carpet people think it's not happening but it does happen quite a lot. What what was the coroner's ruling in the end how do they categorise it? So it's categorised as death by misadventure so I worked in the police for 10 years as a crime scene investigator I think partly because of my brother's death I wanted to help people piece together how their loved ones had died So death by misadventure is actually the most common conclusion from coroner's investigations. It's about 24% of coroner's investigations um, have a ruling of death by misadventure. I was looking at some statistics and in 2021, it was just shy of 8,000 deaths in the UK were categorised as death by misadventure. It's a huge, huge category. Deaths within this category include drugs-related deaths, DIY accidents around the home, you know, so anywhere where someone has been doing something, and the act that they've been doing has accidentally led to their death will be classed as death by misadventure. It's really quite a broad category. There is no way, because I've been looking into it, there is no way to find out exactly how many deaths in this manner um, are actually occurring in the UK. And just to clarify about erotic asphyxiation, is this mainly something that somebody will practice with a partner or on their own or either? I think it's either really. I think I I do know of partners that are doing it. I've only spoken to one other person that said that it was autoerotic that led to a friend's passing. I've spoken to two people that have said I know of a couple where one of them died. While I, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, that's safer because, you know, you've got somebody else there. It obviously depends on the manner in which you choose. So my brother used a belt around his neck. So effectively strangulation. And what a lot of people don't understand is that puts pressure on the vagus nerve, which can cause instant heart failure. So it's not just about stopping oxygen from getting to the brain. It's about how that pressure affects the body as well. So while there are many different ways that people practice it, some people use plastic bags, you know, sort of different sort of variants. But, you know, it is one of the most dangerous. And even those that practice it with a partner, there's got to be, I would say, a thousand percent trust there that if something goes wrong, that partner is going to be able to support you and help you and practice first aid. And even those that do, there's no guarantee that actually that there will be a a good outcome from it. I talk a lot about living wills, people making sure that if this is something that they practice, that it's written down somewhere so that people understand that it is something that they do and they do willingly. So that should the worst happen, 
there's something to help with that investigation because you know from having police investigation crime scene photographs and all that sort of thing that goes with that it's a big thing if there's something there that helps that process speeds it up and helps bring you closure then it can only be a good thing I can imagine just the confusion and the pain and the grief of of losing a child or a brother, you know, is enough on its own. And we've spoken to quite a few people who have been through that, whether natural causes or accidents. But to have, like you said, this element in it of sex that we don't talk about. We've found that a lot of people who have lost a child have had people not talking to them anyway, would avoid them because they just don't know what to say. To think that somebody might actually come forward to ask you about it or to talk about it and to have this extra element put on there where you've got to try and find a way of explaining it that almost makes them comfortable but in a way that you might have to explain things you might not want to explain and the complexities of this I find it heartbreaking that such a grief would not be able to be expressed as openly as you might want to or as other people might be able to with their children just because of that that element of having to to explain the sex side of it I presume that's been something that you and your parents have had to deal with all the way along yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I can't speak to for my mother. I can only speak for myself. So I was at sixth form college when my brother died. When I left college, I cut off all ties with everyone I was at college with. I went away to university and I wanted to start again. I didn't want that memory coming with me. I found at university that it was much, much more difficult than I'd anticipated to explain how he died. I had people laugh at response, especially um, other uh, young men would laugh. I had one person really quite adamantly tell me that it was suicide and I was fooling myself. And within a few months, I got to the point where I thought, you know what, I'm just not going to talk about this. So for the rest of my time at university, I just said it was an accident and I never went into any more detail about it. And that is how I lived my life for a very, very long time. Because of people's lack of knowledge the way people responded would just bring in me much more pain than I was able to bear. So not only did I not talk about it, but I tried not to think about it as well until, yeah, my mid-20s where I developed depression, unsurprisingly enough, um, from, from sort of burying these feelings. Because of that stigma and that taboo around it, it just became easier for me to not even broach the topic for fear of the type of responses I'd get from that. Quite often in this podcast, we talk about vocabulary and the importance of the words that we use. For you to say it was an accident, it will have elicited responses or further questions like, oh, what sort of accident? So did, did you have a set form of words that you worked on or that came to you that you just, just said, no, I'm not saying anything more? I, I would just shut the conversation down. I was like, it's an accident. That's all you need to know. And people invariably would obviously fill in their own gaps. Um, lots of people saying it was a car accident, you know, so so many different things. Uh, I wouldn't correct them. I would just say, look, I, you know, I don't want to talk about it. That's all you need to know. Were there any individuals or close friends that that knew you well enough or were enough, uh, were interested enough or caring enough to say, let's talk about this or that had the right words to bring more out from yourself? Not not while I was at university, but I do have one friend who was with me all the way through university and we're still friends today. And she's very much helped me and supported me through the journey I've gone through. She's dealt with her own grief through losses in her own life. And she's always been there and supported me and understood my reasons why I've either held things back or that now I've decided, you know, yes, it's taken me 25 years but I don't want to hide it anymore. It's part of who I am. I don't want to pretend that that doesn't exist. I don't want to bury that anymore. And I think it's important to talk about this. I think it's important that people understand that if they are in the same situation, they're not on their own. 
they're really really not on their own which is where I felt I was in my teenage years I thought you know no one else has ever experienced this this is beyond heartbreaking but then as you get older you realize that actually this is probably more common than any of us realize and I'm guessing when you went through it, I'm just trying to do the maths. This was all pre-internet stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. So you could hide it if you needed to and kind of let the information out as and when you wanted to. But I guess a lot of people going through it now, more recently, haven't got that luxury because you could Google the name and potentially find out about the details. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for our family, that's the fortunate thing, uh, if there is a fortunate thing is that obviously while there's a newspaper article, it's not online. If I want to find that information, I'd really have to put some effort in to go and find that. That is not the case anymore. And every time someone dies in this manner, the media think it's a great story because, let's face it, sex sells, whether it's a good or, or bad. And so not only is it in newspapers, but it's on social media and, and then you cannot escape it. It is everywhere. You cannot hide from it. We know that, you know, the tabloid newspapers aren't sitting there thinking about what does the family behind this person, what do they think about us sharing this story? That's not their primary concern. I mean, it certainly, you know, it wasn't back when I was 16. I do definitely feel for people these days with how social media and how far those stories can travel and how quickly they can travel and that you can't escape them. How did you sort of navigate it at that age as well because they're quite key years aren't they there's a lot going on you've got a lot of hormones flooding around so it's hard to work out just as a general teenager how you're feeling what what did that look like from that sort of like 16 to 20 type time for you oh goodness um I'd like to say that I threw myself into uni work but I probably didn't I kind of did um and I wanted to not reinvent myself but I wanted to make sure that that wasn't what was going to define me which is why I think I I shut myself off from the people I've been at college with I went away and I thought you know what I want to start afresh I want this to be totally different and this is this is how my life my life is going to be but I didn't have a lot of long-term relationships didn't last very long I think if I found that I had to start broaching that topic, that subject, that it was a case of, all right, okay, I'm done now and let's move on. So in some ways, it probably did affect my relationship with others. I think I was probably almost into my third year before I got really what I would class as sort of like a serious relationship with someone. Um, And and that was about six months, you know, when I'm talking about serious, you know, that was the, the limit. And I think that that stuck with me through my 20s as well that um, having to get to that stage where you were broaching this this topic to explain what was going on in in my life and how it impacted me, I think was really difficult. When I was at sixth form before I left, I did have um, I did have a, a sort of one boyfriend for the entire time. And I feel for him massively because how on earth he managed to cope with my changing moods. Yeah, I would fly off the handle, I would start crying. I think I was once broke down in tears in the in the girls bathroom in college and all the younger girls were laughing because there was this sixth former in the in the bathroom crying and things like that you know he he did really well to stick with me for 18 months to be completely honest because I probably wouldn't have done looking back on it now Uh, (laughs) but you don't realize at the time that that's your grief coming through you you have absolutely no concept of that Um, and like you say as a teenager you're dealing with so many other things as well that it's difficult to unpick what is grief and what is just growing up and finding out who you are anyway. 
I mean, grief is hard enough as an adult, let alone trying to do it at that age with everything else going on. I know you said when we we spoke before this that you'd had a whole range of reactions to people when you have actually told them news or when you've been in the presence of people talking about the subject. Just give us an idea of, of, of what that has ranged from and to. The one that sticks out for me and it's the one that I sort of tend to share quite a lot is I worked for the police. I worked in the police for, for 10 years and during one situation um, there'd been a, a similar sort of death and a quite senior police officer was joking about the fact of you know the manner of this this person's death and what were they thinking at the time I had to politely take him to one side and say I don't know whether you're aware of this but you know we talk about how we should watch what we're saying because we don't know who our audience is well just to let you know my brother died in the way that you're making jokes to the to the room he was absolutely mortified he really really was but so was I because it's it's so difficult to explain how that feels when there's a room of 30 people all chuckling away at something and you feel that they're laughing at you. You feel like there's this spotlight on you, that everyone is looking at you, even though no one else in the room has any concept of that. Um, it was That was really, really difficult. And I understand, you know, I'm in the place. I understand that there's this element of black humour, but I think it's it's quite indicative of how we react when we hear about autoerotic asphyxiation. And I went to see a comedian, a well-known comedian, and he was doing a bit of a stint on it as well. And I'm in the audience and everyone's laughing around me and I can feel I'm sweating. I'm thinking I can't breathe. I, I need wanted to get out. But I thought, well, if I get out, is that going to make him say something else because I've left? And it's really, really difficult. Joking tends to be the most common response. And it's not just because we're talking about sex and it's not just because we're talking about death. It's that uncomfortable topic isn't it our default is if we don't know let's make a joke let's make this less uncomfortable do you think that's why people do joke about it because they're uncomfortable with the subject and they don't know where to go is it more uncomfortableness than actually finding it funny I do think it comes from uncomfortableness I really really do because I've absolutely no doubt going back to that room where that police officer was talking about it with 30 people in the room I know there will be people in that room there that will try different things with their sexual practices it's just it's just a known fact so you know that they're laughing along but inwardly they're thinking well hang on a minute I do that but I think it comes from this uncomfortable you know let's not let's not think about how other people have sex let's not think about that we don't need to we don't need to sort of delve into that I do think it comes from yeah trying to make ourselves feel less uncomfortable with the topic the first example you gave with your colleague in the police force, you're in a really secure place. You you know your feelings, you know your position, you've got the confidence to just to gently take someone aside and say this is inappropriate. But over the 25 years, what have been some of the sort of the headline feelings that you've had inside about dealing with this, about how your brother died? Have, have there been conflicting or confusing emotions that you felt towards your brother or towards this whole cause? Do you, do you know, I think it's really quite an interesting question because I never have, I've never asked myself why. I've never sort of sat there and gone, you know, why, why did you do this? Because he was 21, he was single and, you know, in that's, you know, it's what, it's what, it's what people do, it's what men do. And so it's never really been that sort of, I've, I've never had that asking myself that, that sort of question and I've never felt conflicted yes I miss him every single day and do I wish that he'd not done it of course I wish that he'd not done it and you know we've all had those feelings of oh if we'd have just gone down to see him that weekend if we'd have just done this but he still would have tried it he would have tried it on a different day it's I think I don't want to say it's inevitable but I think because of the nature the 
type of person that he was and you know his personality I think he was always going to want to explore so I think at some point something was always going to happen so I think I've kind of reconciled with that sort of quite quite early on though like I say having developed depression in in my 20s sort of having someone to talk about and talk that through with most definitely helped me to start to unpick where that was coming from that's not to say it hasn't caused issues. I've had sort of bouts of depression throughout my life and they all center around the male figures in my life and what might happen to them. The most recent one being just before I married my now husband, you know, I was absolutely convinced something was going to happen to him and he wasn't going to come home. Um, And it all sort of goes back to that first major loss. It's really quite intricate, I think is the best way to describe it, how it filters through everything. So it's really difficult to sort of unpick sort of my precise feelings around it all, if that makes sense. It certainly does. And I think that intricacy, it's almost like the fragility. I look more for the obvious. So if, you know, when you say you relay stories about college, university, people asking you questions and you just sort of learning to say no comment almost, you know, my assumption would be that's because of embarrassment or shame, something that you're carrying in that regard. But clearly it's not. Clearly it's a lot more you're, you're weaving in how they might react as well as how you might react and all sorts of different things so it's in, it's incredibly complex it it really really is and I think I have to be honest and that it's taken me 25 years to understand that myself um and I think you're absolutely right in that there will be this assumption that if I because I don't want to talk about it that that I feel some shame in in how my how my brother died and I don't I really don't and I think a lot of people find that difficult to understand as well because you think you know well if that was me then I would be feeling some shame, but we're each sort of different, I suppose, in in that regard. But yeah, it is very, very complex, very difficult to unpick all those individual emotions from that. Is there a period when you look back from, you know, 16 to now, where you think that was the hardest stage? Was it the initial grief and finding that out? Or or would you say it would have been further down the line when you were kind of dealing with it? It was absolutely further down the line and I think when I left home and was living by myself that is when things really started to slide and obviously like I say I developed um, depression and in some some cases quite severe depression just through the isolation loneliness no one no one to talk to I actually I went to work in Bermuda for a couple of years about sort of almost 10 years ago and actually that was really really incredibly difficult I went by myself I didn't know anyone and again, you get that that isolation. So when we went into lockdown, I was already knowing exactly how people were going to be feeling because I felt like I'd already been through that. And although the loss of my brother wasn't recent, when I was living abroad, I felt it much more keenly. I didn't have my family around me. I didn't have my support network around me. So anniversaries were much, much worse. All the feelings were really heightened because of that isolation. And despite living on a paradise island, it was a really difficult, really difficult couple of years. And last year, you sort of broke your silence, as it were, mm. and you put up a LinkedIn article talking about it in more depth and being very honest about it. How was writing that and how was the response to it? Do you know, when I first had this idea, I don't even know why I suddenly decided that I, I needed to do this. Initially, I wrote it for myself, but I've got a friend who's sort of, within the kink community and she was saying that you know there was a lot of articles there was a lot of support for people out there into sort of not not that you can do it safely but but how to practice it in a more safe way and she felt that if I did want to share it that there would be interest 
And I did want to share it because 25 years on, we're still not talking about this. There's been so much recently about these TikTok challenges, these blackout challenges that our children and young people are trying, where children have been challenged to hold their breath for the longest time or to restrict airflow in some way. There have been a couple of children that have died. There've been one that was on life support for quite some time. And while they might not have a sexual element, it's the same thing. We're messing around with the oxygen that our bodies need. And we need to be more open in these conversations about how dangerous these practices are, whether there's a sexual element or not. For me, it felt like the time was right. I'd started talking much more about my bereavement journey uh, through the work that I do in workplace wellbeing. And I felt, you know, I'm talking to people about how important storytelling is. And I thought, well, if I'm going to talk about it, I need to talk about it. I need to be that example. I need to be able to share this. And I was really surprised at the love and support I got off the back of the article. I was fully anticipating a few trolls or some really unpleasant comments. And there was there was absolutely none of that, which was a massive relief, to be completely honest. But I'm so glad that that article is out there and that other people can read that and perhaps know that they're not the only person that's experienced this. To get a sense of where you are with friends that practice breath play, how have your conversations changed with them? What What's your balance of sort of interest and, and warning? Yeah, it, it has been quite sort of nuanced, I think, there, because obviously I'm interested to know why that particular practice, but equally I think they completely understand where I'm coming at. You know, they understand what my reticence would be. And it's actually been a really healthy conversation a really healthy adult conversation to say, well, do you know this might happen? Well, yeah, I know that might happen, but equally I might get hit by a bus crossing the road. So that for me, I weigh up that risk and I want to take that risk because this is something I enjoy. So it has been really good for me. I think a lot of people would just sort of assume that I'd be like, oh no, don't do it, don't do it. But I think my very nature is that I seek to understand the rationale behind why people do the things they want to do. It's almost like that psychology element of it. So, yeah, it's been really, um, really quite interesting. It begs the question, is it worth the risk? It is an interesting question, which is one that I ask myself quite a lot. But then people jump out of planes with just the thinnest of material to slow their impact down. And I would ask myself the question, is that worth the risk? (laughs) Probably not. Um, But I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't thrive off that kind of risk taking. And I think it comes down to human nature. We like to take risks. Uh, And taking risks for some people is what really gives them pleasure in life. It's what makes them feel alive. We're never going to stop this. You know, this has been around for a long, long time. You know, since I think the first record of it was in the 1600s. So this is not a new practice. It's been around for a long while. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But I agree with you. Is it worth the risk? (laughs) Just taking selfies nowadays. If you've been to any of the national parks in America and watched how people take selfies, you think the risks people will take with their lives to get something, whatever it is that they're after, is, you know, it can be very extreme. Absolutely. What's your sort of gut reaction if you hear someone who's going through a similar loss? Or have you come across people you've actually kind of met or spoken to at all who have been through the same loss or has that not happened? Only recently. I recently spoke to someone who they're partner's previous partner 
had died in in this manner and I was able to have a really frank conversation with them which was so so beneficial for me and and hopefully for them but yes in 25 years I've never come across anyone else that has said oh my close friend my close family member it's always sort of oh I know a friend of a friend or my neighbor's child or my neighbor's best friend as something you know there's always that sort of tenuous link really that's hard because a lot of people who go through different griefs, they find a lot of healing. And like you said, there's something about being around people that have experienced the same thing. So to not have, have that sort of community can be very difficult because it's something very freeing about talking with people who know the exact situation and complexities of explaining it away and talking to others and everything else that comes with it. Absolutely. And I think it's, and this is, I think this is where I came from, this potentially thinking, well, I need to set up a charity. There needs to be something out there. Um, I know I'm not the only person um, in the UK that's experienced this, whether this year, last year, 25 years ago, there needs to be something out there. There's so much support for all the myriad other ways that people die. There's so much support out there. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing when you type, when you look for people that have died through sort of any kind of sex practice. There's just nothing there. It just does not exist. It's like we don't want to, we don't want to admit that actually, if you practice sex in certain ways, you might die from it. We don't want to admit that. So let's not put any support out there. Whether that comes from the taboo around it and that no one else wants to sort of come forward and say, yes, I've been bereaved in this way, or just, I, I honestly don't know. But I know, speaking to my mum 25 years ago, she was saying the same thing. She said, oh, you know, I, I want to start a charity. I want to do this and I want want to do that ultimately she didn't and as strange as this may sound I'm glad that she didn't because then our entire lives would have become about that charity and I don't think any of us were were ready and all right 25 years seems a long time to to get ready but I'm certainly in a in a space now where I feel much more comfortable to hold these conversations. I can own my bereavement. I can own that grief and, and explain what it's done for me. And I can articulate that in a way that I would not have been able to have done sort of 20 odd years ago. And with a, with a charity in mind, you say there hasn't been or there isn't anything out there. What What would be a priority if you had a charity to put out there? I think... Um, like you said, Claire, I think you, you want that safe space to have conversations with other people that get it, that absolutely get it. In the same way that we have support and charities for death by suicide, it's very nuanced and it, it can impact people in different ways. And especially as a parent, there's going to be guilt there. Did I not talk to them enough about sex growing up? Should I have done this? Should I have done the other? There's all sorts of different elements of that. And, you know, and even if you've lost a partner through this way, I think just being able to offer that that peer support and that safe space for people to come together to be able to go, yep, I, I get it. I've gone through this as well and I've kept it bottled up and I don't want to do that anymore. That for me, I think would be the most beneficial just so people have that opportunity to be able to say it out loud because for 24 odd years, I didn't even say the words out loud. Autoerotic asphyxiation, it's not something you say you know, I'd think it quite a lot, but to actually say it, to actually articulate it is really something quite different. Yeah, and I would put a lot of money on there being people out there who have lost family members and friends to, to either autoerotic asphyxiation or something else um, in a similar category where they've 
not told anybody really and just said, like you said, it was an accident or maybe have even accepted suicide as a reason just to not have to talk about it and perhaps Mm. are hiding the fact that they're dealing with that because they just don't know how to broach the subject, especially like you said, in a culture like ours where people just don't talk about sex in that way. Um, So if they could hear of other people going through it, what a lovely thing to be able to connect with to actually, you know, maybe for the first time, get in touch with people and say, actually, I need to talk about this because I haven't and this is what I went through. I think so. And I think, you know, that's kind of almost the first step in educating our younger people so that, you know, if this comes up as they're exploring their sexuality, to make sure that they explore all the facets of it before they actually commit to trying it out as an act, you know, so we can get that conversation out there, we can get that conversation going. On reflection of the 25 years, can you look back and see good that's come out of this sad loss? Has there been sort of wrestle with hope and learning to hope in life and things again? What What's that side of things been like? I think for me, it's definitely shaped who I have become um, as a person, as an adult. I probably, I wouldn't say took risks, but I went for opportunities that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise you kind of have that conversation with yourself almost like well what's the worst that can happen or well the worst has already happened so perhaps I can give this a go so I probably did take more opportunities than I would have done otherwise it's so difficult because because I was 16 I don't know who I would have become I don't know who I might have been otherwise I might and obviously we'll we'll never know who I might have been otherwise this has been my trajectory which shaped every part of me and part of who I've become and how I've lived my life that was obvious with working for a police force. You said that you, you know, you wanted to help people piece together mm. maybe things that didn't make sense after they'd been through tragedies. But but then after ten years with the police, you you stepped out. So clearly, there's been a another step in a different direction for you and your journey of, of what what to make of life. Yeah, definitely. When I was at sixth form, I actually was going for forensic science. I was going to become a forensic scientist, sit in a lab all day. And then, yeah, things changed to become crime scene investigator to help sort of piece those puzzles together and sort of help to become the voice of those that couldn't speak for themselves. After sort of 10 years, I actually developed a, a chronic condition. So another type of loss. Um, so I had to change my career ever, I say ever so slightly, it's quite significantly. And it's developed into workplace health and well-being. So it's still trying to help those that perhaps need a little bit of extra support. I do a lot of advocating for people with um, chronic illnesses and hidden disabilities to help them get the things that they need. So there's still a lot of that justice really within it. It's just obviously just part of my human nature. But yes, yeah, slightly different. <laughs> I'm wondering about if you could go back in time and and say something or write something for the teenage Sam, what might that be? For me, if I was able to sort of either have a conversation with myself or to read something, I think it would definitely be along the lines of you're much stronger than you think you are. Because I think I've spent the last 25 years thinking that I'm weak and that I couldn't handle the grief. You know, you spend a lot of time you know people talk about oh you know getting through your grief and I think we're all at this point now where we understand that that just isn't realistic and that you know the grief grows with us and I think once you learn to understand that you're in a much better place so I think if someone had told me that 25 years ago I think I would have probably got to where I am now much quicker. Has it changed how you view the future at all? I would say absolutely. And I think now that I've got to this point where I'm able to talk about my brother much more freely and to articulate my own emotions, I think I've become a much, I won't say more well-rounded person, but I think I'm just much more aware of who I am now. 
so that when I'm anything that I'm doing I'm much more aware of how I feel about things and being true to myself and honest with myself is is definitely something that I'm, I'm taking from sort of like the last sort of five years or so really I feel much more like the person I should be is the only way to describe that so I guess to, to summarize and to end with what's your Herman I think it comes back to what we were just saying, actually, in that you're you're stronger than you think. We need to almost embrace our bereavement, you know, and accept it as it is. I'm not saying that that's going to be easy and it's going to be something that's going to happen early on. But I think once we embrace all of those emotions, all of those feelings, and we accept the fact that our grief is part of who we are now, it is part of who we are. We can't change it and it's not going anywhere. And I think once we accept that, and we articulate that and we live with it I think that's how we then become stronger such an important message for us to take away from this conversation to apply before we're grieving or maybe if we're in the middle of it you are stronger than you think one of the reasons people who are grieving don't like being told how strong they are is they feel they don't have a choice they don't feel strong enough to handle it But as Sam says, and maybe you need to hear these words, you are stronger than you think. And no, you won't just get over your grief, but you will grow with it and through it. To find out more about Sam, her work and the articles she wrote, we'll put the links for you in our show notes. Our website is thesilentwhy.com if you've not seen that yet. Or you can follow us on social media at thesilentwhypod on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support my work that's purely run on donations by your good selves, pop over to buymeacoffee.com slash thesilentwhy. Link in the show notes. We're finishing this episode with a quote from Malala Yousafzai to encourage Sam and her mission to speak out on this silent subject and help others. When the whole world is silent, even one voice becomes powerful. Mm-hmm.